most commentators feel like that these are the most difficult verses that you're going to find in the book of Romans. And I don't know about that yet, uh, but as far as we've been so far, these are the most difficult passages that we've run across. And anytime I run across difficult things, I back up and I reestablish the flow of thought so I can understand what is exactly going on here. So let me do that for you to show you uh, how you do that. And I've shown you this before, but it is super helpful. So look back at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Let's establish our flow and then you go, okay, I see what's going on here very clearly. Paul comes to his thesis statement, purpose statement of the entire letter in verses 16 and 17, and he introduces us to the gospel. And he says there in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's a very interesting phrase, and I talked about it when we went through it. What he's trying to communicate there is the righteousness is all the faith. From beginning to end, it is faith. There's no part of it that's not simply faith. That's why we say faith alone. To hammer that thought down, then he quotes the Old Testament when he says, Just as it stands written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Puts the emphasis where it must be. It's on faith. Now, why must it be by faith and for no other reason or to add nothing? Paul says, let me explain that to you because you're absolutely, utterly sinful. And he begins in verse 18 talking about the sinfulness of the Gentile, those who don't have that relationship, unique relationship with God. And he describes them as godless, atheist, immoral. And of course, we understand that that group will face the wrath of God. In fact, Paul said that in chapter 2. By the time he gets to chapter 2, he wants to deal with the other side, if you will, the Jew. And so he puts all the Jews up under judgment. Look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2. And he says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those in chapter 1 or those who practice such things, right? But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice those wicked things and then do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. And so Paul concludes this thought, or as his flow is going down, the gospel is by faith. It has to be by faith because you and I can bring nothing of value to God. God, I don't have any works to bring. I don't have any goodness to bring. I don't have any excuses why you should receive me. The only thing, like Rob said, I think it was this past Wednesday night, the only thing that I have to offer you is my own rebellion. That's it. Therefore, the gospel has to be by faith alone because I don't have anything else to present to God, right? So what you have beginning in chapter 3 down through verse 8 is a series of challenges to Paul's gospel, okay? So Paul has done this. If we've got red cows and we've got those black cows, those Angus cows, and we're trying to herd everybody up into the corral or the fences, right? But we've got some of those white-faced, fancy Angus that just think they're special. So they're running out here to the side and don't want to be herded in with everybody else because, bless their heart, they're just special and they're different. And so Paul's like, okay, let's just take some time to deal with these guys that think they're significant and let them present their arguments. And so what we have in the first eight verses is these arguments against Paul's condemnation of everyone. 
Paul addresses each argument and he's like, okay, now that we're all in the fence or all in the pen, let's go on with the gospel and look at chapter 3, verse 21. He returns right back to faith. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe or who of faith, is what that literally means. So in other words, we move from faith to faith. And he says in the middle, let me show you why it's of faith. But there's a few out here that says, no, Paul, that can't be true because of this, this, and this. And Paul says, yes, it is. Let me explain those things. And now we're all up under. There's no one good. There's no one righteous at all. And then he turns back to faith. And so... That's what's going on here. And so now that we understand, all we got to do left is walk through the questions. Now, Paul's using, it's confusing, especially, well, I guess more so in the English, but it's a literary device called a diatribe where he's, he's actually made up an imaginary opponent. There's nobody here arguing with Paul. He's writing a letter, okay? So he uses this diatribe, which is an imaginary opponent that he wants to deal with. And these are not just random questions. If you remember, every time Paul went into a city, he always went into the Jewish synagogue, he always preached the gospel, and more times than not, how did they respond? They drug him out, they beat him, they stoned him, they left him for dead. So probably what we have here is Paul saying, okay, these are the top five questions that I always get hammered with every time I preach the gospel of faith. So let me just deal with these top five so that you can understand that what I'm saying is absolutely true from beginning to end. Now, since these are Jewish questions, do they they have any application to us whatsoever? What do you think? They always do because there's always an underlying principle that they're arguing about and we can bring that principle into us. So here's the deal, and, and let me give you further application for us, and I think this is even this one will hit you in the gut a little bit harder. Paul has left us all under the judgment of God. And since no one likes to be left there, we need to consider these arguments or thoughts that Paul's bringing to us. We need to understand the principle behind them and apply them to ourselves for this reason. Listen to me. Jesus says this in Luke 5, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, here's the problem with that. Every time you and I get in a situation where our actions are questioned, we justify our sin and defend our righteousness. Why in the world would we justify our actions and defend our righteousness when the Lord himself says, I didn't even come for the righteous? I came for sinners. It's like we want to put ourselves in a category that Jesus says, I don't even deal with those people. Why would we ever do that? And so we have to come to the reality of what Paul is saying about us here. There's not a single one of us that could ever bring favor or pleasure to the mind or heart of God, period. And we have to come to that own reality and rest in our own unrighteousness. So again, I'm going to take these questions and I'm going to put them in the mouth of a Jew and we're going to present them a little bit differently. For instance, in Romans 3, 1, 
to the questions now. Paul says this, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? So if we take that statement, we put it into the mouth of an arguing Jew, it might come to Paul in this way. If you're right, Paul, and we as the Jews will be judged by God, then everything that God ever did for us basically has wound up being nothing. The law is nothing. Circumcision is nothing. It's never been a benefit if in the end we both stand before God and we're found out to be guilty. You see how that argument comes? That's a significant argument, right? Now, it is sad, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's so sad to have such great benefit and privilege from God and yet be left unsaved in the judgment. And every time I think about this line of thinking, Hebrews 6 always comes to mind. And I don't want you to turn there this morning. Just listen to it. We dealt with this when we were in Hebrews a few years back at length. But the writer says this in Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 4. In the case of those, so he's presenting a case. In the case of those people who have once been enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the ages to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. And then he gives this illustration. It's very powerful. For ground that drinks in the rain, like we have this morning, just see that as a blessing from God. As ground that drinks in the rain, which often falls on it, and then turns around and produces vegetation that is useful, they receive a blessing from God. But if in spite of all that beautiful, wonderful blessing of rain, it yields thorns and thistles, in the end it winds up being burned. Now, that passage is often misunderstood and misapplied because people want to say, using that passage, you can lose your salvation. You're missing the point of the passage. The point presents to us is a tremendous challenge of our heart. Have you ever been exposed to the blessings of God? Have you ever experienced the wonder and the greatness and the power of God? And we could all just powerfully testify without question. Well, the, the, or the, the next question comes to us, in this way, then there's fruit, yes? If the Spirit's in your life, then there's fruit, yes? If you hit, sit before the Word of God and you study the Word of God, and if you've given yourself to the worship of God, then there's fruit, right? And certainly we should say amen to that. But that was certainly not the case with Israel, right? They had always had the blessing of the rain. They had always had the gracious hand of God at work in their life. Yet, as a whole, they produce nothing but thorns and thistles. Paul's going to say something in Romans 9, and it's very powerful. He says, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And what he's, he's saying there is, just because you're physically from Israel, don't mean you're genuinely of the spiritual Israel. Now, as I thought about that, I realized... All of Israel experienced the mighty hand of God. There's not one single person that was of the nation of Israel that did not experience the mighty hand of God at work in their community. Yet, not all Israel, in fact, most of Israel, did not produce the fruit that it was intended to produce. So let me turn that to us and say this, and you give it some thought in your own heart. How sad it would be to come to worship weekly 
but never know God personally. How sad it would be to hear the Word of God taught, but never trust in its truths. How sad it would be to hear the gospel proclaimed, but never experience its power. To be so near the family of God, but never be a child of God. How sad it is to know that so many will experience so much of God, but will be left without God in the end. So rather than thinking about that in the context of losing your salvation, think about that in the context of you within the community of this own body. How wonderful it's been over the last few years to see the mighty hand of God move in so many of our lives. And you've seen that. You've, you've been here. You've experienced that. How sad it would be not to have that personal experience with the Lord Jesus yourself. And that's certainly what the nation of Israel faced. They saw God at work all around them. And they came to worship weekly. And they heard the prophets proclaim, but they refused to walk in humble repentance and obedience. And in the end, they were left out. But Paul answers this question, well, you know, there's no, there's no benefit whatsoever, Paul, if that's true. And Paul argues in verse 2, oh, no, 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 it's great in every way. First of all, you were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, I'll tell you, I understand this better this week than I did last week. Last week, I applied the general, the, the word is logia, which is the word logos, where we get our word, the word. And so I applied that general blessing to, or I applied that blessing generally just to the Word of God. We have the Word of God. But when you begin to study the arguments, I realize he, he has a much narrow definition of the word oracles. And what Paul is saying is, it means the promises of God that came to Israel. You have those special promises as a nation, Paul says. Okay? You have the covenantal promises that came to David. You have the promises that God is going to redeem you, right? And if you understand it in that more narrow sense, then you understand the next challenge. Notice with me in verse 3, where Paul says, What then, if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Let me put it in, in, in a little different format for you. In other words, the Jew might say, If you're right, Paul, and if some Jews who had those promises did not believe or trust in those promises and then were rejected by God, then the only conclusion that you can come to is this. God is unfaithful because He has failed to fulfill His promises and redeem us all. That was their argument. Wait a minute, Paul. We've got the promises. Yes, I know you have the promises. And since we have the promises, all of us are going to be redeemed. No, He's never said that. Well, if we're not all redeemed, then God Himself is unfaithful. And of course, you know Paul's response that we'll get just to in just a second. But this is why they would say this, okay? And I give these to you very often. Since the Jews were the physical descendants of Abraham, and we could turn to John 6 where they got in an argument with Jesus about this. Since they had the sign of circumcision, since they were actually given the law of God by God, they considered God obligated to save them. And hold on, you need to get this one. They really felt like God's obligated to us because we have all this stuff that He has given us. And so here's my question. Do we obligate God to save us because of something we have or we've done? Now consider this. and we are, We're all very familiar with this passage, right? 
Romans 10 9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so we present the gospel in this format. You just need to say this. So just repeat after me. Oh, they said it. And I've actually had friends that, that I mean, they do that. They actually even go in nursing home and they want them to say this. I've had cousins in my own family that wrote me a letter when I went to the mission field and wrote down everything that needs to be said. And they said, Joey, just get them to say this. And then it goes on that if, if you confess with your mouth and then believe in your heart, and this is what we say, do you really believe? And then we use this phrase, in your heart of hearts, and I don't even know what that means, but do you, do you just really believe it? Do you really get it in there? Well, first of all, our heart is deceitful beyond measure. It's the most wicked part of our body. And so I'm asking you to trust in the most wicked part of your body to really believe that. And then what do we do? We pronounce them, as if we had this power, saved. And then we spend the rest of our lives with this kind of attitude. Well, God's obligated to me. I've done this. I, I remember the day when I confessed with my mouth. And I remember when, oh, I just so believed in my heart. And so God's really kind of obligated. He's on the hook because I did it. I mean, I signed the contract. I did the thing. Listen. We pray for your kids all the time. And we long for their salvation. And I rejoice when they profess faith in Christ. And I rejoice when we baptize them. I rejoice with you. And I don't have an ounce in my body that questions that. Because I never had an ounce in my body that questioned the salvation of these two on the front. But I told them. And I've told each one of them. If there ever comes a day when you have no love for the Lord, you have no thought for the Word of God, you have no consideration for the worship of God. The only thing you do is live your life according to your own way. Don't ever think for a minute that you were converted by the Holy Spirit. And I mean that with all my heart. We can deceive one another. And how horrible it is to deceive ourselves and then act as if God's obligated to me. And the reason that I know that we obligate God, have you ever asked a person in your life, are you saved? And they answered no. I mean, I can count them on like one hand, probably two fingers. So it's like everybody is good with God. And I'm thinking that can't be possible because Jesus said himself, the, you know, the road is narrow. The gate is not wide. There's not going to be many there. Yet I, I've, I've met like two people in my life who's saying they're not going to be there. Something's wrong. And I think the biggest thing that's wrong is we all think that we've got God on the hook because we've done something. And see, this is what this question is. If God don't save me, God is unfaithful. I'm actually, I don't even want to repeat it. I'm not even going to repeat that. I've heard pastors say such things about the Lord. If I'm not saved, they'll say something negative about God. Because in I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you really serious? God's not on the hook. He, he's not obligated. His word is true. And all those who are of faith is true. And all those who genuinely 
confess with their mouth and believe in their heart, they are saved. But you're forgetting, you know, Romans 2.28 that we read last week. He is not a Jew who is one outward, nor a circumcision outward in the flesh, but he is genuinely a believer who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, and it's by the Spirit. And we said last week, brothers and sisters, you can't do that stuff. He does that stuff. And so the first argument we're very familiar with, but... It has nothing to do with the faithfulness of God. He is faithful from beginning to end, right? And so when the Jews call, salvation is called into question. Oh, this is, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of my notes. Because I, I want to bring this to you. Because I really want you to understand what I'm talking about right now. So when someone questions our salvation, where's the first place you look? And, and the reason is, I've got a for instance of this actually happened in my life. And I'm not going to... I'm not going to give you the example, but I want you to understand this. Have you obligated God? And here's one very clear way I think you can answer this question. And it is this. When someone calls your salvation into question, what happens? Do you get offended? I know some people who do. I mean, they get, how dare you say, I need the Lord. I know I'm saved. Or do you say, with tears beginning to roll down your face, Oh God, what am I doing? What am I saying that would ever cause anyone to question my relationship with you? Oh God, did you send this person to question my salvation so that I would wake up and repent and turn to you. Oh God, thank you for the blessing of sending someone my way to question my arrogance and my pride, thinking that I'm good with you when I might not be. You see, those are two totally different responses. One gets offended because how dare you question, what in the world are you doing? That person has actually obligated God to save them, whereas the other person in absolute brokenness is not obligating God. He's still depending on the mercies of God. You see that? I'm glad I didn't skip that. I would have kicked myself for skipping that. And I teach you these things so that you can pay attention to yourself. Because a lot of times we really need to do that to one another because of the way that we're acting and the way that we're doing especially in high school. I'm terrible with teenagers. I would make a terrible youth minister. I would send them home crying most of the time because they all want to tell everybody that, you know, they love Jesus and they're Christian and then they get somewhere, wherever, on the sports field or out on Friday night and they're acting like complete idiots and they need somebody to walk upside of them and go, wait a minute, I thought you were converted. And then watch their response, and you'll know often. If they don't care, well, chances are, probably not converted. If they get offended by that, how dare you say? Probably not converted. If they go home and they deal with the Lord, probably converted. They probably understand the gospel, and they cry out to God to forgive them and help them. You see, we can learn so much by paying attention to ourselves. But notice Paul's response in verse 4. 
May it never be such an emphatic, how dare you call into question the faithfulness of God, especially as a Jew. A Jew could never call into question the faithfulness of God. God's been faithful with them from beginning to end. And that's why Paul uses this in verse 4. Rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. What's more, Paul says, if, if every man be condemned, may the faithfulness of God be praised. That's what he means by that phrase. Let every, let every man be found a liar. Let God be found true. That's what that means. Paul's saying, hey, don't call into question the faithfulness of God. If every man is condemned, you cannot question the faithfulness of God. In fact, if you'll think about it, he'd be perfectly just in condemning us all. Do you think about that? If the only one that's ever in glory is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, God's been faithful in judgment. Paul says, don't dare call into question the faithfulness of God, right? So let me ask you some questions about this. If God condemned every man, are you okay with that? Or do you immediately have problems with that? Because if you understand the sinfulness of man and the holiness of in righteousness of God's judgment, you would have to agree with Paul when he says, let God be found true and every man be found a liar. Never question the faithfulness of God. I think David would definitely agree with Paul because he had a similar struggle and he responded with great brokenness and humility. Let me get you to turn with your Bible so I can keep you awake just a little bit longer. Turn with me to Psalms 51. Psalms 51, you're very familiar with. It's David's repentance for Bathsheba. And I want you to look at verse 2, and I want to read down through verse 4 so we can watch David's heart in regard to his own sin. David says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, namely adultery. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. And then he says this, against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and you are blameless when you judge. In other words, David recognized that his sin was first and foremost against God and since it was against God, God was just to judge him. Let me say that again. David knew that his sin was solely against God. And if God judged him, and by the way, judgment for that was death, God would be perfectly just in putting David to death. And here's why you need to be comfortable with all this, because the same applies for all men. All of our sin, all of our rebellion, and all of our wrongdoings is against God. And therefore, God is just to judge so rather than appealing to this obligation, David appeals to the mercies of God and begs God for forgiveness. I know I'm wrong, and if you put me to death, you're just, but please, I beg forgiveness and for your mercy. See, those are two different responses. 
The Jews are mad at Paul for putting them under judgment. David says, I'm worthy of it. He's not offended by it. Not only that, judgment is an expression of God's faithfulness. He did promise blessings for obedience and judgment for disobedience. So when he's judging, he's being perfectly faithful in the judgment. Now, before I go on to the next question, since we're a small group, everybody understand that? Everybody understand how we obligate God to save us rather than appealing to His mercy? There's so many people that obligate God. They got Him on the hook. And you're not going to find that in the Scriptures. Don't do that. Next question, verse 5. And these, I won't deal with these other ones at quite at length as I did that one. Question number three, verse five. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? And then Paul says, I'm, I'm merely speaking in human terms, meaning foolish terms. So where the Jews had just attacked the faithfulness of God, now they're going to attack the fairness of God's judgment, right? So Paul says everyone's under judgment. And the Jew says, that would not be fair. In other words, Paul, if we're under the wrath of God, God's judgment is unjust. For how can the children of promise experience judgment? Notice Paul's response in verse 6. Again, it's very emphatic. May it never be. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? In other words, Paul says, if God doesn't condemn you in the judgment for your sin... He can't condemn anyone else for their sin. Do you see that? Look at Romans 2 and you'll see it. And I read it to you just a second ago. Look at Romans 2 and I'll read to you verses 2 and 3. Paul says there, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And let's stop. There used to be a day where we really knew that. They're still living in a day where they knew that. The atheist, the sexually immoral, those who reject God, those who ignore God. There used to be a day where we'd go, oh, absolutely, they're going to suffer the fires of hell. Now we live in a day where many have crept into the church, like Jude tells us, that tries to actually say that those people are not going to be under judgment. But the Bible clearly says that they are. So Paul says, you know that they are. But notice verse 3. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, and then turn around and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Are you really going to say God's judgment is not fair because you're judged? When in fact you're doing the same things as they're doing. We got into this last week. You know, we love to throw all the homosexuals in, under the wrath of God. And, and well, Scripture does that. But then we turn around and we ignore our own sexual immorality. Like, I, it's going on in my life, but I'm not... I'm not, I'm not going to be judged. I mean, I got Jesus, right? Really? Paul would say, really? You're going to bring that excuse? You condemn others, and then in, in, in very much similar ways, certainly in the same category, 
you sin, but you think you're not going to be judged. See, that's exactly how a Jew thought. I know the Gentiles are going to be judged and praise God for their judgment. But me? No. I've got the promises of God. And Paul's like, you really think that? And do you realize how many in the church today think that same thought? They have no concern about the repentance, repentance for sin in their life. They don't care about the things that they're doing. Yet they feel very comfortable running around saying that they're going to escape the judgment of God. You know, until you understand this, guys, we don't sufficiently understand the gospel. We have to comprehend our guilt before God. We must realize that we are worthy of judgment and death by our own doing, right? So until we see God as just in condemning our souls, we cannot comprehend the grace of God on Calvary. We can't. And as I said just a moment ago, are you really going to bring an excuse to God? And would you even use His Son's name to justify your own sins as if you would get out of judgment? Listen to what Paul writes in Galatians 5. You're taking notes. I'll start in verse 13. Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. And then in verse 19, he says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, fashion, uh, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, things like this. And then he says this, Of which I have already warned you, just as I warn you again, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't think that you're going to go rolling up to the Lord on the day of judgment and actually be found in sin and then use the name of Jesus as the one that's going to justify your behavior that you've walked in your whole life. You're doing exactly what they're doing. And we have no excuse. We appeal to God's mercy or we have no appeal. And if we've appealed to His mercy, then we've been filled with His Spirit and we walk in repentance and faith and obedience, right? Next question, verse 7. And these two questions are kind of together. We just have a couple of more questions to go. This one's tough. <clears throat> verse 7 says, But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to His glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner... And why not say, as we are slanderously reported or claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Now this one, again, is probably the most difficult. So let me reword this and put it in the mouth of a Jew. According to you, Paul, my sin ultimately glorifies God. And by the way, it does. So my question then is, why would God then condemn me as a sinner? And since, according to you, sin somehow brings glory to God, why not just go the whole way and say, let us do evil that we might glorify God all the more? Now, before you think that's utterly silly, look at Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Paul dealt with this problem a lot, and there's a reason for it. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? 
so that grace might increase. Paul uses that phrase again here. May it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? And so here's how this goes, and this is where this argument comes from, and it is, it is a good argument as far as we can consider that. Paul says we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There are no works of righteousness. You cannot do anything to secure the joy, the favor, or the pleasure of God. It is by faith in the finished work of Christ. Don't dare think you're going to show up with Jesus plus something you've done. That is not going to go well for you. Paul says, in fact, that's anathema. So don't think you're going to come before God with, I've got Jesus and look, I've got all these wonderful things I did in my life. So I want justification. No, Paul says, no, no, no. You've believed in a false gospel. It's grace alone. Well, Paul, if I don't have to do good things, and I'm just saved by grace, and you're telling me that God's grace is so amazing and overwhelming, it always washes away all of our sin, then it stands to reason, God, the more sin I bring... The more grace we'll see, and the more grace we'll see, the more we'll glorify God. So hey, let's just live sinful lives, because in the end, won't we all praise Him for the most grace, or the more grace than we could have ever imagined? Let me ask you this. Who, who's, who's the worst sinner in heaven? Oh, come on. What did Paul say? It's me. Did you have that thought? Did you have that thought? We should have that thought. And it is true. It is very true that God's amazing grace is glorified in our sin. Right? It's just amazing at the thought when we come to Him in repentance and faith, the worst among us is washed as white as snow. That's amazing. But at the same time, Paul will say, have you lost your ever-loving mind? Look down in, in verse 8. Paul just simply says this, their condemnation is just. Are you kidding me? I love some of your faces when I actually worked that argument out. You started shaking your head no, like that's an ignorant argument. It's absolutely ignorant. But at the same time, we can never measure the depth and wonder of God's grace. And if you're in your sins this morning, listen, you're but repentance. That's as far away from God as you are. I mean, repentance. And you're completely and entirely reconciled with God and everything's washed away. So why are you going to sit there in your sin when all you got to do is turn away and put your faith in God and His grace is greater? I mean, we sing about that, right? His grace is greater than all our sin. But how foolish would it be to say, well, I can continue in sin because His grace will always be greater? Don't, don't, don't presume upon the Lord. You might find yourself in judgment. So the last question, and, and then I'll have a question for you. Verse 9, what then, Paul says, are we better than they? So in other words, the Jew is asking the question, not have we received more benefit, but here's the question for you, Paul. Are we in a better position in regard 
to the judgment of God. As we are all standing there waiting our turn, since we're Jews, are we going to kind of get the nudge from God? You know, I've always favored you. Just hang on. We'll get through this part and then you'll be fine. Are they favored in that way? And the answer to that is, look at verse, verse 9, the second part of that verse. Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. In other words, there's not a single solitary man that's going to receive favoritism in the judgment. We'll all stand before the Lord with whom we have to do. There is no favoritism. Now let me bring that into a very real perspective for you in regard to nations. If God judged nations, and I struggle with that, some say that He will, as of yet I'm a hard no, but let's think along these lines for just a second. Has our nation received more benefit from God than other nations? Oh my goodness. I don't know a reasonable soul who would say we have not. I don't know of another nation more blessed than us in the history of man. So here's the question. Will God favor us in the judgment? Obviously, He's blessed us more. Will He favor us more? And of course, you're all saying there's not a chance. In fact, to more who is given, more is required, right? And so great things will be required from us because we've received great things from the Lord. So will God favor you in the judgment? And that's my question for you. And let me remind you of this. He didn't favor His Son. You ever think about that? The Son of God received the full measure of the wrath of God. Now I'm thinking, if the Son's not going to get favor, I'm not going to get favor. If the perfect Lamb of God's not going to receive the favor of God, I'm thinking you're not going to receive the favor of God. But this is something else that we know about the Son, right? Even though He endured the full measure of the wrath of God on our behalf, God raised Him from the dead. And so it's really a simple thing in the gospel if we will turn from our sins and leave our excuses lying in the dirt where they belong and come before God, understanding that if you condemn me, the only thing that you've done is been faithful to who you are because I am certainly worthy of an eternal death. But I'm not here to plead my case. I'm here to cling to the gospel of grace. I am here to trust in the one who's gone before me. And I beg your mercy that you might stay your wrath and do what's unjust. I don't want justice. God, don't ever give me what I deserve. I do not want what's coming to me. I simply plead for your mercy. And I've come trusting in your son. Now, if you find yourself there in the judgment, I can say this according to the Word of God. It will be well with your soul. It will be well with your soul. Let's pray.